Okay, for the third and final lecture for this week, we're going to turn from the electoral arena to uh, the legislative arena. Um, so what's happened is interest groups have participated in the electoral arena at whatever level they've uh, participated in, and uh, the candidates that they want have either won or lost, and now the uh, elected officials have taken office. I'm going to focus specifically on the legislature for this one, even though there are other elected officials in the executive branch, uh, and uh, there are appointed officials in the executive branch as well as in the, the judicial branch, and uh, those are how, how does the interest groups lobby those other officials, and who those other officials are is related to the electoral arena for sure. Uh, the, but the, the main, the, the most widespread way in which interest groups participate in electoral politics is for legislators, members of state legislatures, Congress, uh, city councils, county commissions. Uh, they elect tons and tons of, or th those systems elect tons and tons of legislators. So the electoral arena has been left behind. The election is over and the winners take office and the losers either disappear or they plan their, uh, uh, their, their challenge uh, a second time. Interest groups have supported candidates, some of whom have won, some of whom have lost. Um, now, whether they've gotten a lot of winners or whether they've had a pretty bad cycle, interest groups now are interested in uh, participating in the legislative process. And even if you didn't participate in the electoral arena at all, right, that's not where you put any of your resources or very little of your resources, now this is where the goal of an interest group to get their preferred policies enacted, this is where it happens. So uh, if you've had a lot of electoral success, great. That's gonna make the job now easier, but it doesn't make the job unimportant. In fact, it's still the most important. Now, um, I'm gonna look at this uh, lobbying legislature from both sides of what it is that interest groups do, but also, again, flipping it around to thinking about this through the perspective of elected officials. So <clears throat> you've just gotten elected and uh, you either have or haven't been supported by certain interest groups. You're certainly going to be uh, lobbied uh, by all the different interest groups, uh, those who supported you, those who uh, didn't support you, those who actually might have opposed you, because you're now in a position to make policy decisions, or at least to vote on policies, and uh, that vote is exactly what interest groups are most interested in. So what makes a legislator amenable to interest group lobbying for or against a given bill or an amendment or a regulation? I guess regulations actually are in the executive branch, so uh, I'll talk about that later. Um, and what resources do interest groups have to support their lobbying activities? So you're a legislator. What's gonna make you likely to not just listen to an interest group uh, but to adopt the policy that they want as your own preferred policy and then to make, move that to the top, uh, closer to the top of your agenda and to take aggressive action on that. Um, there are five different sort of factors that play into this relationship. Um, and one thing I want to note right at the beginning uh, is that uh, there are two kinds of policy support that interest groups could be asking for. Uh, there is positive policy support where here's something we want you to get enacted, right? Uh, we want you to get a carbon tax uh, enacted through the state legislature to reduce carbon emissions. We want you to um, put into place a citizen oversight board of the city police department. We want you to uh, increase uh, funding for physical education and arts education in the uh, city's uh, educational system. That's a positive policy. It's something that doesn't exist 
or it represents a change from the status quo. In that case, the interest group is having to play offense. Um, other types of uh, policy preferences are purely defensive. They're protecting the status quo. And, and this might not seem like a policy preference, but in a universe of competitive interest group activity, there's almost always going to be somebody who wants a change. So if your group likes the way things are, uh, then you're also asking, your preferred policy is that the status quo remain in place, right? If you are, for example, uh, um, an executive for uh, a, a company that makes uh, um, defense-based uh, satellites, um, you're gonna want defense spending on uh, space to remain the same or get larger, right? But you're definitely gonna want it to remain the same. There are interest groups that want to cut that kind of spending. You're gonna be playing defense against those other interest groups. Um, lots and lots of lobbying is actually done defensively rather than just offensively. And it, I note this here because one, it's important to, to realize that uh, lobbying is not all purely asking for something to change. In fact, quite a bit of lobbying is asking for things not to change. Uh, I also note this here because uh, the difference between offense and defense is important. Um, it's always easier to play defense than it is to play offense. Um, the status quo is easier to maintain than it is to change. Uh, there are psychological reasons for that, and then there are also structural reasons that are built into our political system for that. Um, and I won't get into either of those reasons, I'm just asking you to kind of uh, accept my assertion that playing defense uh, is uh, an easier thing to do than playing offense. It doesn't mean you don't have to do it, it, uh, it doesn't mean it automatically happens. The status quo doesn't protect itself. To a certain extent, the status quo protects itself because of human psychological propensities against unforeseen changes, but it could always use protecting. Um, so, everything I say about lobbying applies both to offensive and defensive lobbying, um, but just note that to succeed defensively is going to be easier than to succeed uh, uh, offensively. The same techniques are useful, the same factors uh, uh, apply to uh, levels of, of success of different groups, uh, but uh, there, are two, there are two different pathways to uh, getting your preferred policies. One is to keeping things the way they are, the other is to uh, enacting a change. Um, the first big thing that makes a legislator amenable to lobbying, either for or against uh, a, a change, is their ideological position. Right? Um, it's always easier to ask a legislator for a policy that aligns with their state of beliefs and with their party label and with their, uh, not just their party label, but with the specific ideological version of their party, uh, party label, right? Um, it's easier to ask a Republican for a tax cut than it is to ask a Democrat for a tax cut. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible to ask a Democrat for a tax cut or to ask a Republican for a tax increase um, because ideological position is only one factor. It's often seen as the biggest factor, like money is the biggest factor in politics. Money and ideology are the two biggest factors in politics. They are definitely big factors, but they are far from the only ones. Um, and when we're talking about policy, usually when policy is discussed in sort of just casual circles in the media, among people who kind of are just, you know, not really professionally involved in politics, but viewing politics, um, things are painted in broad strokes. And so, of course, Republicans are against tax increases and for tax cuts, and Democrats are for tax increases and against tax cuts. But 
All policy is done at the specific level and on specific policies, and context really matters. Um, if you're a Republican, you could easily be in favor, while you're generally in favor of tax uh, cuts, you could be in favor of certain kinds of tax increases because they target specific kinds of actions that you have uh, a problem with. Um, so, for example, as a Republican in a state legislature, you might not be against uh, an increased uh, tax on, um, say, uh, cigarettes because that's part of your ideological position is that uh, that's bad for you and uh, we should de we should de-incentivize the smoking of cigarettes. Now, that's good. That, that position is going to be much more likely to be probably a Democratic position, but you could easily be a Republican who wants to cut taxes on businesses, wants to cut taxes on wealthy individuals, but who, who could at least, if not necessarily full-throatedly support a tax increase on the cigarette tax, could actually uh, support that, uh, could, could vote for it. Um, tariffs are the same way. There's all kinds of different taxes, sales taxes, um, that, uh, that uh, de-incentivize certain kinds of, of economic behaviors. Whatever your broad ideological position on taxes, on a specific particular tax, you could definitely be against it. And certainly, um, Democrats are uh, not for tax increases across the board. They are very much for specific kinds of tax increases. They don't want to increase taxes on the middle class. They want to increase taxes on wealthy people. They want to increase taxes on corporations. They want to increase taxes on investment. So um, ideological position is often painted in, in sort of broad strokes, and, and it is. And it, yes, is always going to be easier to ask for a policy that aligns with the legislator's ideology rather than, than, than goes against it, but uh, that's, that's not the end of it. Um, probably a bigger consideration for elected officials, even in their ideological position, because you can, def, def, you can, you can depart from your ideological position and still get reelected, um, is the constituent connection to a particular policy. Uh, I take it for granted that if you're an elected official, you want to get reelected. Um, that is uh, largely true. The number of people retire before they lose elections that all the time, but not typically until they've spent a lot of time. It's very rare for somebody to get elected and then to, after one or two terms, say, yeah, you know, I'm done with politics. I'm, I'm getting out of this thing. Um, typically, if somebody uh, moves on, they move on to either a higher or a different type of position. You run for state legislature, and then later on you run for lieutenant governor, or you run for uh, mayor of your, of your city. Uh, it's very rare for somebody to get into politics and not care about some either re-election to the position they hold or election to some other kind of office, usually a higher office. So uh, their elected officials are always going to be thinking about voters. Now, they're going to be thinking about their ideological position, because that connects them with voters, but they're also going to be thinking about what their voters specifically benefit from. Not just what their voters stand for ideologically, but what their voters benefit from. This is where you can be asking a Republican for a tax increase, because a particular kind of tax increase could benefit their voters. Uh, let's say you're asking uh, your Republican uh, legislator for an increase in import tariffs on uh, steel. Well, that generally goes against the Republican free trade ideology, at least the pre-Trumpian uh, Republican free trade ideology. But even pre-Trump, you could ask a Republican legislator for a targeted tariff increase, particularly if that spoke to the needs of the constituents. If you had steel mills in your uh, state or in your district, it was going to be much easier to depart from your general ideological position. Um, many policies that interest groups are asking for 
are going to provide a benefit for constituents in uh, a number of districts and in a number of different states. And so when you as an interest group represent an interest that is prominent in a legislator's district or state, you're going to have a way easier time asking for a particular kind of policy. Right. And this is again where ideology really crosses. Like if, if, if you're a senator, a Republican senator from a farm state, typically Republicans are against government uh, support, government subsidies, government action in the marketplace at all. But Republican senators from farm states have no trouble voting for agricultural subsidies. Why? Because they have a lot of constituents who are involved in the agricultural industry who care a lot about that issue. They have a high level of saliency for that particular issue. And so those constituents care more about their benefits than they care about ideological consistency on the part of their United States senators. Um, and the, because you're always getting reelected by your constituents, not by some broad national electorate, not by some ideology, ideology helps with your political brand and helps win certain voters, base voters particularly, but it's your constituents who get you reelected. Interest groups that can demonstrate a constituent benefit for a particular policy, who can demonstrate constituent support for a particular kind of policy, regardless of its ideological content, are going to have a uh, stronger voice with legislators than those that don't. Uh, if, you're, if you're going to a legislator who um, represents a primarily urban district and you're gonna ask them for support for farmers, that's them not gonna speak to their constituents. You're gonna have to speak a different language to them and probably the only language you can speak to them is the ideological language and if, if, you're, if the policy you want goes against their ideology and doesn't make a, a constituent connection, then there's not a whole lot that you can say. Now, as a lobbyist, as an interest group hiring lobbyist or interest group, interest group directly lobbying itself by bringing members to uh, committee hearings and by, by having people come to town hall meetings, et cetera, um, that those are uh, forms of lobbying that exist uh, as well as direct sending paid lobbyists in to talk to uh, legislators. There's, there are those means. You're not gonna target every legislator. You don't need 100% support. Um, you just need enough people to actually, one, advance your priority to the top of the agenda, that's key, because you can't even get a vote until it's on the agenda, and two, then support your particular policy. Uh, you're gonna look around for legislators who either ideologically or in terms of constituent connection uh, are going to be likely to support your position. Um, now, even then, it's not an automatic uh, uh, case that that legislator or group of legislators is gonna say, oh yeah, good, we're gonna take action on your uh, um, on your uh, policy preference. They might say, we would vote for that, but we're not gonna work hard for it. Um, and uh, the getting legislators to go from supporting something in principle to supporting something aggressively and pragmatically uh, in actuality is an important step. Um, one of the things that interest groups can do, and lobbyists, specifically paid lobbyists, can actually do for legislators, is they can help them do the job that the legislator will need to do to support something. Um, so one of the things that legislators care about is being able to vote for something and then present it to their constituents in the next re-election as a positive thing. Now, I've mentioned in previous lectures that legislators have limited amount of time. Um, and when interest groups can provide resources to overtax legislators who always face a scarcity of time, 
that will shortcut them to uh, a, a desired outcome, then that's going to be very beneficial for that interest group getting that legislator to uh, not only see their perspective, but to take action on their priorities. And a big thing that interest groups do for legislators is they provide them with information and messaging on a particular policy, right? I'm a legislator, I'm gonna end up voting on bills and amendments across 30 different domains of policy, right? And my challengers in the future are gonna see my record and they're gonna be able to use any of those things uh, against me in my future election. They're gonna be, my challengers are gonna be paying very close attention to all the things I do. Because all my challenger has to do, they don't have to do a job, they don't have to legislate, uh, they have to just look at my record and attack it. It's always easier to attack than it is to build. So if I'm, I'm a legislator and I'm gonna build something, if you want me to build something for you or with you, you're gonna have to make it easier for me to then defend myself against challengers, sell my position to uh, my constituents in the future. And interest groups that can provide information and messaging to legislators essentially say, here's the data that supports this policy. So you can take that data and give it to journalists and you can put it into speeches and you can tell it to constituents. And here's a way to message, to speak to your constituents in a positive way about why this is a good policy. Great, like if you write me a speech, write me a press release, write me a white paper that I can then use without having to spend my own time, my staff time and my staff resources to produce for myself, great. Like I, I'm, I'm happy to vote for your uh, um, increased funding for physical education in the city schools. But if I can't defend that choice to the voters, if my challenger is gonna attack that as wasteful spending, and I don't have a good response to that, I'm gonna be a little more reluctant to actually vote for increased spending for physical education. But if you have studies for me that show how important it is for mental well-being, for academic achievement, for vocational achievement, to have kids do more phys ed in school, um, and you have press releases prepared that I can send out to uh, local newspapers, if you have uh, tidbits that I can put into my stump speeches that I don't have to work on or think of myself, all of that work, that you do for me is going to not necessarily change my mind. If I'm against increased phys ed uh, funding, it's, that's probably not gonna change my mind, right? Um, but if I'm for it, but I'm really kind of on the fence as to whether I'm actually gonna actively move towards it, then it's going to be, uh, the, that information and messaging is going to actually give me a nudge to make this more of a priority. The next factor is something I talked about uh, uh, two lectures ago, uh, and it's, it's related to the kind of support that information and messaging gives, it's re-election support. Another thing that legislators have to do is they have to generate resources to run their re-election campaign. They have to get money, they have to get active energy, they have to uh, um, get endorsements. If you can provide those things for them, then they're gonna be much more amenable to your policy preferences. And I think I've said enough about uh, that particular factor in previous lectures that I don't have to amplify it anymore right here. Uh, the final factor is lobbyist relationships. Um, lobbyists are professional people who are paid to talk to legislators and to provide them with information, messaging, to provide them with conduits to uh, re-election support. Um, and the relationships are stupendously important in politics. Politics is basically, it's, it's all about a relationship game. Uh, in the 25 years that I've been uh, studying and teaching politics, everybody that I've talked to who works in politics uh, 
in a daily way, you know, says relationships are all important. And so lobbyist relationships are super important. This is one of the reasons why lobbyists actually make, some lobbyists uh, make a lot of money is because they've fostered a lot of positive relationships. They can call, they have access to legislators. They can call up uh, somebody and get a lunch or get a golf or, 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 or get a, a meeting in their office really quickly, whereas other people who haven't fostered those relationships can't. So lobbyist relationships are important for gaining access and access is really important. You might have the best data and the best messaging. You might have studies and uh, press releases and uh, paragraphs for stump speeches to get to a legislator to get them to support your preferred policy. But if you can't actually get a meeting with them to get that to them, like you can email that to somebody in their office, but that email is just gonna sit in an inbox. It's never gonna get forwarded on to somebody who's actually important enough. If you can't get that information and messaging uh, there to uh, in, in the front of the mind of the legislator or their chief of staff, then it's not gonna do you much good. Uh, so the the relationships that you can build through supporting their election and through having uh, uh, lobbyists who are connected to the important people in those offices, that's going to make them amenable. So what are the things that interest groups can use to support their lobbying efforts? One, they uh, need to have constituent support and the more constituents they have, uh, the better because obviously if uh, elected officials are, are thinking about re-election, it's a numbers game. Right? You just need more votes than the other candidate and you win. So the more numbers, the, 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 the larger the constituent connection you can demonstrate. Uh, so membership size, but also not just membership size, membership concern and focus. You might have a bunch of uh, members of your interest group that are constituents of a given legislator, but if those people don't care about your issue that much, they're, they're members of your interest group, but it's not the top of their priority, then the legislator is going to be like, yeah, you know, yeah, that, that, me voting for this thing is going to put a target on my back and it's not going to win me very many uh, voters for it. So uh, I'm a little mad on that particular thing. Uh, this is one of the reasons why it's always easier to play defense than offense because it's always easier to inspire fear in a legislator to take a yes vote than to kind of just try to table something or even to take a no vote. Um, but and obviously then financial resources are useful in re-election support, in paying uh, um, uh, for the best lobbyists who have the best long-term relationships. So clearly, membership and money are important resources. Uh, and um, the ability to mobilize uh, those resources uh, on behalf of either your positive policy, playing offense, or on uh, uh, behalf of defense is going to uh, be the deciding factor in whether you're successful or not successful in your lobbying efforts. Now, one last note, um, I just wanna, I, I mentioned this in passing early, but I think it deserves to be amplified at least a little bit here. Lobbying is a multifaceted activity that is not just paid professional lobbyists who go and have lunch or play golf with legislators. That is definitely an avenue of lobbying. Um, and those people are professional lobbyists, they're registered, that is lobbying in its sort of technical sense. Um, I'm talking about lobbying in its broader sense, which is asking for a legislator to support, push for, and vote for your preferred policy. Uh, that can come in other uh, avenues, one of which I mentioned in passing before, but is an important one, is getting people to come to events where that legislator is going to be appearing. Um, it could be that legislator comes back to their district and does a town hall meeting. If you can get a lot of your supporters to that town hall meeting with signs, to ask questions, um, to, uh, to push for uh, their issue to be t closer to the top of the discussion, 
That's a lobbying effort. Um, uh, other public appearances are committee meetings, right? If you can get people to come and testify, if you can get people to come and sit in the gallery, if you can get people to come outside the state legislature with their signs, that's also a form of lobbying. Um, if you can get constituents themselves to directly try to make an appointment with their city council member or their state legislature and go and sit in the office uh, with uh, those legislators, that's also a form of lobbying. Citizen lobbying is as important as professional lobbying. Now, they're both important, for sure. I, won't, I don't want to downplay that professional lobbying is important. It is important, but I just want to note here that it's not the only form of lobbying. Citizen lobbying is actually sometimes a more effective means of reminding that legislator of a constituent connection. Right? Professional lobbyists, they, they can bring information and messaging, they can bring re-election support, they can call on old relationships and loyalty and trust. Those are all stupendously important. Um, citizen lobbying can really push that constituent connection. And when you're seeking re-election, the only final thing that matters is the number of votes you get. There are other factors that generate getting the most votes, but the only final thing that matters is the number of uh, votes that are counted on election day. Constituent connection is something that uh, can be a very powerful tool for interest groups, particularly interest groups that don't have a ton of money, but they have concerned, connected citizens and constituents who are, who are willing to put their time and their energy into the cause of their interest group. So lobbying the legislature is both professional lobbying and citizen lobbying, but all five of these factors really do uh, play into, well, lobbyist relationships is the, is the one that doesn't really apply to citizen lobbying, but the other four all do. Okay, well I hope that that makes clear what it is that, that uh, um, interest groups are doing when they're trying to lobby elected legislators. Uh, next week we're going to move on to looking at how they're going to be lobbying executive uh, and judicial uh, office holders. Until then, this is the end of week two. Have a great weekend or whatever you're having.